The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Business. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. In this week's podcast, the banking crisis is the biggest story of our time, we're told, but have storytellers risen to the moment? How have writers and filmmakers managed to avoid the cliches of big finance? And can you ever make heroes and villains out of economists and auditors? This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio, we have a mix of business heads and the apple-toting leisure classes. John Lanchester, author of Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay. Dominic Savage, writer and director of the TV film drama Freefall. Dan Milmo from The Guardian City Desk. And we're joined by critic at large at The Guardian, Zan Brooks. Welcome to you all. Someone reminded me I once said, greed is good. Now it seems it's legal. Because everybody's drinking the same Kool-Aid. Now I've been considered a pretty smart guy. And maybe I was in prison too long. One watch and one mobile phone. But sometimes it's the only place to stay sane and look out through those bars and say, is everybody out there nuts? Yes, Gecko's back. This week sees the release of Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. It's Oliver Stone's follow-up to his 1987 film. Zan, worth seeing? Worth seeing, I guess, if you like the original. There's always money to be made from a sequel to a successful original, even if that that sequel comes kind of 23 years after the fact. It works as a drama. I don't think anybody would go to see this as as a sort of investigation into the collapse of 2008 and the the bank bailout or anything like that. Oliver Stone's a has always been an opportunistic filmmaker. So this is sort of half in love with the world that it's criticising. On the one hand, he's saying, it's terrible, it's terrible, they're wasting all this money, it's, uh, they're criminals. And on the other hand, he's saying, but look at the cars they drive, look at the motorbikes, look at their apartments. Um, so it's the real tabloid tactic of kind of shout it loud and then condemn it in, in the small print. Dominic, one of the things that is quite striking about this film is it feels very 2008 um, he's talking about a banking crisis and about instruments that were all over newspapers in 2008 and in 2010 aren't so much. Is there a problem when Hollywood tries to be that current, that journalistic, as Zan says? Well, I think, I think actually that uh, there's, there's a merit to something being of the moment, in the moment, and, and it having a real sort of urgency about it. I mean, I think a lot of people, we were so sort of swamped by information and the whole deal with the credit crunch at the time. It is a bit sort of uninteresting in a way to go back and look at it. I mean, we've seen, and we've seen those kind of uh, images and stories and themes so much as well. You know, I think there is a danger. I think it's one of those things that is, it is very current. And, and, you know, although people are still suffering from what happened then, you know, I think probably people were a bit jaded by those ideas and themes. So I kind of know what I'm going to get. And in fact, when you hear the trailer, you know what it's going to be. So maybe if you love what Michael Douglas did originally, you know, which was good, but then you want to revisit it, you would go and see it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't rush to it myself. There's another problem with films tackling a, a current issue, in that by the time they come out, it's not so much a current issue anymore. Films are like ocean liners. You know, it takes like two years to make a film. So if, if your main selling point is this is what's happening now, then it's already out of date. John, one of the things that strikes me about the follow-up is the 1987 version of Wall Street was seen as a kind of 
era-defining film. But it was one of a sort of batch of cultural products that we got. We got Bonfire of Vanities by Tom Wolfe. We also had Lies Poker around that time. Have you seen anything in the current crop of cultural coverage of the banking crisis which is up to that level? I'm not sure that I have. I mean, there's one interesting point about all three of those things taken together. They were all essentially negative portraits, intended to be negative portraits, that were all adopted by the financial industry as as a rallying cry. Um, Wall Street had greed is good, which was adopted by traders as a slogan. Uh, Wolf had Masters of the Universe, which again was adopted by the Masters of the Universe as a self-description. And um, Michael Lewis's book, Lars Poker, had, you know, he says himself the whole purpose of the book was to put people off finance as a, as a career and he hoped that they would you know, give up working at Goldman Sachs and go off and become oceanographers to pursue a childhood dream. And within w- weeks of it coming out, he was getting letters from people asking for career advice, how to get into the big banks. And there's, there is that curious thing that in trying to kind of criticise the zeitgeist, in, in some curious way, they, they helped define it and uh, you know, inadvertently egg it on. We haven't seen anything like that yet, but it's early days. The crash was so complicated and there's so much explaining involved in trying to get across what actually happened that in some ways maybe the, the sort of second-order cultural reaction hasn't quite kicked in yet. Dan, you're, well, in fact, you're the only panellist around this table who ends up writing about business every day for a living. How yeah. impressed have you been, by the way, that the cultured classes have dealt with your subject? Well, I definitely wasn't impressed by Wall Street too. I mean, one of the low points for the protagonist, Sheila Berth, who plays a trader called Jake Moore, is where he has to sell his New York loft for uh, $4 million instead of the $6 million that he bought it for. And you just look at that and think, you know, I really don't feel for you. Actually, dramatically, I think it leaves you feeling quite isolated. Um, I think as a journalist, what I'm fascinated by currently in our, our desk is, is the human impact in the US is becoming quite clear. It made me think of John Steinbeck. There's basically a a sort of underclass being created in America. There's 10% unemployment still, despite massive financial stimulus. And I think what we'll see over the next few years is that voice coming to the fore more. Um, I think we'll see people going out and trying to find these people who are being cast out, essentially, by uh, the consequences of what people like Gordon Gekko, um, sorry, the, the latter iteration did in Wall Street too because not forgetting he comes back and does quite well for himself and gets absolutely no moral comeuppance whatsoever which again is one of the reasons why Wall Street too left me feeling completely flat. Dominic you did a bit of that in Freefall of trying to show how high finance affected people who were just trying to buy a flat. I mean I think that's what I'm fascinated by is you know although the themes of greed are attributed to, you know, people in finance in the city. You know, I mean, I was fascinated by the fact that it actually greed can is a part of everyone in, in some ways. And I wanted to show that greed is a much a part of someone at the very bottom as it is at the top, you know. You see it as greed, do you? I, 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 the basis of it, in a way, yes. And, I mean, the most extreme person is Bernie Madoff, isn't it, really? You know, I mean, that's fascinating because... You know, he lost his humanity with that, didn't he? So there's an extreme example of someone that kind of loses their soul, you know, completely. Someone's described him as being the most evil man in the world or something, didn't they? You know, but the idea that you would shop everyone, your family, your friends, 
because you were so greedy that it took control of you, became like a, like a sort of monster. And do you think the same pressure applies to people who are simply trying to buy themselves an ex-council flat? I, I, well, I do. I, do. I, think, I, well, I think people obviously have had a, 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 a shock since those times. And I think in those times they were encouraged to be, they were encouraged to be greedy. That's the thing. Everyone told them that they could have everything. And I think that's what, what fascinated me, that someone that really didn't have anything believed they could have the world as well. So it's something that I think will always be a, an essential and classic human theme. I think we'll always want things and um, that's why it's so fascinating a subject matter I think. There's the difference between wanting a roof over your head and wanting a, a third yacht. That's the thing and I think John makes this point very eloquently in his book about how people just wanting to have a home were shafted by a combination of factors. There's an element of recklessness too though. I mean it is complicated. The sort of responsibilities are blurred because I, know, I gave a talk in, in Edinburgh earlier in the summer and there two questions, two quite pointed questions from the audience came in about how much to blame the consumer. I mean, someone always asked something about that, but they, they were sort of repeated thing. And then someone came up to me afterwards and Soto Voce pointed out that the two people who'd asked the questions were both quite senior members of RBS, which I thought was interesting. Very, very keen to blame the consumer for overborrowing. It's complicated. We had so much credit jammed down our throats. There's a period, remember, of 2007, you couldn't pick up the phone in the evening without it being a cold call offer of credit. There was an unsolicited offer of cheap credit every day through the letterbox. When I called my own bank, the beloved Barclays, the first thing you get, before, even before you got the hateful automated thing, you got an offer of free credit before you got the chance to punch. So, yes, people did slightly lose their way. And on the other hand, it was like, you know, force-feeding geese to create foie gras. Yeah. It's also the case that governments went along with it because inequality has risen. We're surrounded by images of things we should want every day. And the way to narrow that gap isn't to address the issue of inequality. It's cheap credit. Cheap credit was a complete panacea. So there's a complicated balance between governmental responsibility, financial sector responsibility and individual responsibility. It's one of the things I'd really like to see some some big work done about. Is it a peculiarly American quality as well? I mean, in that it has now taken over the world, but it goes right back to the American idea of manifest destiny and that the frontier is out there and nobody should prevent you from realising your dreams. And so you see it in the American elections of like the Reagan Democrats will vote very deliberately against their interest. They're not self-interested because they're voting for an ideal of where they're going to be a year down the line and where they'll be will be with a million-dollar yacht. What I'm quite interested in is you, Zan, John and Dominic have painted this in quite sort of eternal themes of greed and recklessness. Whereas I, I know, as, as quite a boring person who writes about it for a newspaper, I tend to see this period as being quite an aberration and it's not about eternal themes. It's about two societies, American and Britain, which had unprecedented inequality and unprecedented wealth at the top of society. And I tend to go along with the, with the Milmo uh, argument on this, actually, that if people are trying to get a flat and the only way they can do it is by getting a loan five times their income, that's not greed, is it? That's just necessity, isn't it? But what but if they can't pay it back? The, I think it's an issue of responsibility. I think the people at the top of the financial tree did have positions of power and therefore I think it's incumbent upon them to behave more responsibly than the house buyer. I think, that, I think we have to acknowledge that. Another point that John's book makes is, uh, is giving people courses in personal finance at school obviously makes sense from, um, from what we've seen happen over the past three years. Well, if we are going to blame people for being greedy and 
getting in above their means, then unfortunately we're going to need to teach people yeah, how to manage credit. Yeah, but they'll all be sponsored credit. by RBS or Santander. <laughs> That's the problem. The yeah. is, you know, talk about the, roof of, the people I met did have a roof over their head and they had a, actually a reasonable life. And actually they lamented the fact that they'd forsaken that life for this other thing which they then couldn't afford and lost. So they were, they were sort of content but they were then led by the hand, you know, and allowed to believe they could have something bigger and better, which they didn't actually, in the end, that was the interesting thing. They saw through that whole thing and realised that actually they were ha- much happier before with that more smaller place than when they had the bigger place, which, which put them into debt. Subprime borrowers were usually people who had poor credit ratings as calculated by the companies which assess the credit of every single adult, breaking down patterns of spending and credit history to produce a single number. In the USA, the number is called the FICO score, after the Fair Isaac Corporation which invented it, and it runs from 300, meaning you're on the FBI's most wanted list, to 850, meaning that you're Warren Buffett. Actually, having said that, Buffett's credit might not be as high as you'd think, Because one of the things which improves your credit is being in debt and having a regular history of repayments. If Buffett has no mortgage, has only one credit card, has his utility bills paid by someone else, and has no outstanding debts or credit lines of any sort, his credit history might conceivably be a little thin. Credit ratings are all about history, and if you don't have much credit in the form of utility bills, credit card bills and such like, your credit history can look sketchy. It's not unknown for people in impeccable financial condition to have poor credit ratings because they don't have enough history of debt. Welcome to Bizarro World. John Lanchester reading from Whoops. John, you're a novelist and yet you've ended up tackling credit rating agencies and the intricacies of securitisation. How easy is is it to do that? Well, I I felt impossible to do it in fiction, partly because explanation kills fiction. And this story, which is, I think, in my view, incredibly interesting and full of drama and suspense and interest and sort of general relevance, but it it does involve a lot of explaining. And if you try and do that in a narrative or fictional form, you have people... In science fiction, they call it, tell me, professor. Someone says, tell me, professor, and then it bores on for two pages. And uh, the reader wakes up to the noise of the milkman dropping the pint off at the front door. So I wanted to tell the story and felt that if I wanted to do it, I had to do it in a non-fiction form because terrible things can happen if you try and shoehorn stuff like that into a novel. Is there a way that you did it which is different from the way a journalist like Dan would have done it? No, more space. That, that's the only real difference. And the other thing is that the sta- I think the standard of... Co- I'm not just saying this because Dan's here. The standard of coverage in this area is incredibly high, chasteningly high, if you come to it as an outsider. But a lot of it is addressed to people who already, as it were, speak finance. They understand money. They understand the basics. And... There are a lot of people out there who don't. And in fact, it's, it's OK to be a sort of educated, literate person and not to know what a bond is or not to know why interest rates matter. It's a curious thing. It's a perfectly acceptable gap in your education, culturally acceptable gap in your education. And I was trying to educate first myself and then talk to people who were in the same position I was in. San, how well do you think filmmakers have done? Because it was something that a visual medium would have even, an even harder time to convey the intricacies of high finance. I think that's true. Uh, I think film is a, is a literal medium in that it shows dramatisations of things. And how do you dramatise a bank bailout or a crash? And that is something that it, it has struggled with. You know, it, it's been attempted. Uh, I think documentaries tend to do it better. 
There was a, a good documentary called Inside Job by Craig Ferguson that looks at it. It's a bit dry, but it, it, it does the job. A film that I actually really liked, and I'm sure some of the panellists would, would object to, is Michael Moore's Capitalism, A Love Story, which was unashamedly a polemic, but it did at least kind of grab you by the, the scuff of the neck and, and drag you through this world and showed you, of course, an incredibly slanted view of it, and it was totally his take on it, but it did explain in very crude childlike terms how it works and then how it falls apart although tellingly he Michael Moore does a thing where he tries to get people to explain what derivatives are and none of them can um, which sort of suggested that it was a total obfuscation so I'm I'm grateful to John in his book for at least explaining what derivatives are because I had no idea before reading it. Dominic, you actually made a, a TV drama out of high finance. How on earth did you get around the, the obstacles that Zan's talking about? I, I mean, I, I was uh, always confused about the mechanics of, of, uh, of the process all the way along. So I had someone who understood them very well, CD, CDOs, aren't they? CD, I've even forgotten their name. But he explained it to me many, many times because it was something I had to, and I still never quite understood it. And the actors never really understood it either. I, I just wanted scenes that kind of showed quite understandably the excitement that's generated in those environments. And I sort of sat in on, on trading rooms when there were deals going on, and it is an exciting, there's an exciting atmosphere about it, even to, to a cynic like me about that business. And, and it's the quick mind, the, the, you know, the sort of the, the high end burst of energy and all that stuff, which I found more, more interesting. I mean, the films like, there was a terrible film called A Good Year, do you remember that, the Ridley Scott film, mm-hmm. which I thought just showed, did everything which was wrong for me. It was like, it just, it was all about hubris and power and sexual power, all that stuff, which is, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in particular. The, the guys that I spoke to in in, uh, in the city, actually, there were, there, were, there were a lot of very good people that wanted to do good things, and that w- impressed me. That actually, there's a goodness, and I think all the characters that I wanted to deal with had a, had a very good side to them. They felt that by doing what they were doing, they were genuinely helping people, you know, poorer people. They were allowing people to have better lives, and I think that genuinely was a, was the basis of, of their lives. Dan, is there anything that journalists can learn from the way that filmmakers and writers have portrayed the credit crunch? Yes, I mean, I think John's achievement is quite humbling, given that he was a, a relative ingenue to finance. I know he's, he's written a few articles before that for, I think, The New Yorker and other publications on this subject, but only in recent years. So I think it's a phenomenal piece of research. Um, I'd just like to add one other sort of cultural artefact of this era is The Power of Yes by David Hare which is an interesting sort of theatrical genre in that it's effectively theatrical reportage where David Hare, portrayed by someone on stage, just goes around interviewing people for two hours about how the credit crunch happened. And it's actually really interesting. I mean, it's a bare stage and it's just people walking on and being interviewed by David Hare, but it tells the story very well. And as a journalist, you look at it and think, wow, so he... Some of the names are disguised, but he clearly spoke to people like, I presume, Fred Goodwin. I mean, George Soros is played by someone on stage. And you look at it and think, well, David Hare is obviously not a bad playwright, but he's also a very good reporter. It was an unusual moment, the, the credit crunch, uh, for being a story that is very... It's one of those things where reality gives you something that's very hard to improve on. I think coming back to this thing of why the cultural products haven't come along yet, I think it's very hard to beat something like Freefall or, or Andrew Ross Sorkin's book, a reportage too big to fail. You know, the inherent drama and interest was so great. Um, you know, you have uh, Philip Roth once said that it's you know the, the modern novelist is always having this problem of it being impossible to top reality. 
And I think the Credit Crunch is an example of that. There was a film, um, the documentary Enron, The Smartest mm, Guys in the Room, which, which actually did, the reality of that was unbelievable. When you watched it, you thought, yeah. I can't believe that mm. a human being could be like this. You know, and that's, that's, that's fascinating. Just on, on this point on uh, reality, Oliver Stone was asked uh, if he'd make a film about the first Gulf War, and he said no, because CNN has already made it. And I think that's certainly true of the financial crisis. If you, if you watched uh, Sky News when uh, you know when Lehman was going down or RBS was being uh, bailed out, it was horrific but thrilling. You know, it's just a fantastic drama. There is so much dough floating around out there at the moment. They are throwing that wedge at us, yeah, and you can't get no one to borrow it at six percent. This here is a list of people who can't get credit. This was not easy to come by, yeah? I've had to grease quite a few palms to get hold of this. This is gold dust, do you understand? These people are begging for a helping hand. What I want to eradicate from this shithole is what I call ODTMD disorder. Odidums, they might default, all right? There's no room for sentimentality in this office, okay? There's one thing that's important, is getting a signature at the bottom of the mortgage document, and that is it. I want mortgages, more mortgages, bigger mortgages. If they've got a mortgage, then remortgage. That's really it. You've got your list, now get to work. Dominic, um, as that clip shows very well, um, Freefall's got some pretty clear heroes and villains. Uh, I remember the TV review at the time, Sam Wollaston said that he wanted to get up and actually punch his television. He was so angry at some of the characters. Did you need to do that? Did you need to make it extremely black and white? You know, the, it was it was a kind of a distillation, really, of all the people I'd met. I met lots of different characters from all different walks of life within that world. And, you know, I think in a way, the, the one that did come across the, the most insidious and, you know, was the mortgage broker, really. So I suppose that's where I, <laughs> that's where I didn't need to kind of hold back. There was a sense in which they didn't have any morals in them, morality. They did, you know, when, when I talked to the guys, as I said earlier, who, who were successful in the city, there was they had a philosophical approach to it. They, they, they do care. They, 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 were, they were extreme in, in a way as well. But I felt when I met mortgage brokers, they didn't care. They didn't care about anyone but themselves. And I think, that, you know, that's... I completely agree. I don't think that's painting it black at all. That particular section of the market, I think that's just straight down the line, realistic description of what they were like. But that's because their arse is on the line if they don't get commission back. No, I th- it's because, you know, there are pockets of deregulated capitalism that are, you know, effectively legal criminal behaviour and... I think there are pockets in the mortgage brokering business, particularly in the US, but here as well, that were, they might as well have been wearing ski masks. <laughs> San, you uh, were praising Michael Moore for Capitalism Love Story. That is another case of painting black and white, isn't it? Yeah, it totally paints black and white. But it also makes at least some strides towards doing what, what Dan was wanting to see of like the human stories behind this, the casualties. Um, and he does find people who are actually properly feeling the pinch. I mean, feeling the pinch. Their lives are completely wrecked by this. And just these sort of ghastly, almost kind of Dickensian-like vignettes that he manages to find and paint. There's the the deregulated, the privatised youth detention centre in Pennsylvania, which basically just kind of railroads kids in with the help of a corrupt local judge who who sends the kids to this detention centre for things like throwing a stake at my mum's boyfriend 
um, and they end up there. And then the bill for their incarceration is, is sent straight to the, the taxpayer. So it does find those things that are like stranger than fiction. If you put that in a novel, people just say this is just lurid and overblown. Um, and he does ferret those out. But I really liked in that film at the sort of towards the end when he found this cooperative, where everyone <clears throat> was was kind of paid on the same sort of level, uh, whether it was the managing director or the worker on the shop floor, you know, just in terms of what they, they what they put into it and they shared in the profits. And he sort of said, well, there is a, there is a better way, and that's what I like about films like that. They sh- they show some some of the beauties of yeah. of, of the situation and the basic kind of good nature of people beneath yeah. it all. Um, there's another good character in it of the black sheriff in a sort of small town who's basically his job has been to go and mm. kind of foreclose people and just turf them out of their homes. And he's sort of refused to do that mm. because he's, think, he's arguing quite logically if, if the federal government bails out the banks, it, it's behoven on the banks then to kind of filter some of that down to people who are struggling to make yeah. mortgages. Dan, as someone who goes out and meets business people regularly, most of them do not fit into either the Blofeld or the James Bond archetypes, do they? They're quite dull actually business people no i mean they're you know on, on one level they're very good at executing their jobs um obviously the, the problem being that the fesses were thrown off some of them over the past decade or two and uh, we saw the end result but no one problem with being a reporter is you don't quite get to have the psychological insight interviews you do kind of chat around the balance sheet and you know in day-to-day reporting you don't go into saying so sir fred what on earth led you to do this and you know um what what happened in your childhood to turn you into this sort of rapacious <laughs> capitalist that you clearly are you have to sort of leave your imagination to it so no that doesn't come How across would they react if you ask them that um it would just be so far off the map that they wouldn't. If you know them, if you can gauge it, then it's fine. I mean, personally, uh, I think you'd have to know someone pretty well to try and pull that off. Um, I think one of the problems is this sort of sense of embarrassment. I think people would just lo- lock you down, really. Uh, it's just that phrase used, Dickensian. It made me think of The Wire, which is also in John's book. And what fascinates me about The Wire is that as a portrayal of the uh, underclass of US society, the majority of The Wire was filmed long before the credit crunch even took hold. I want to see another five series of that. Um, John, you actually wrote a novel once about an out-of-work actuary who doesn't fit in these dramatic archetypes. Surely the world of business is actually much more full of people like Mr Phillips than it is people like Fred Goodwin. I think that's probably right. But one of the things that I was interested in about Mr. Phillips, um, he's an accountant who's suddenly made redundant when he's 50. One of the rules in writing for the screen, writing for Hollywood, is that the character has to have agency, that everything actually has to be, in some sense, a consequence Mm. of the hero's choices. The real life doesn't work like that. And a lot of the things that happen to people, they have absolutely no agency at all over. And I think that's the thing we're going to be going through a lot in the next few years, I heard a firefighter's wife on the radio, he'd just been laid off, made redundant, and she was saying, but tell us what we did wrong. Tell us something we could have done differently. She kept coming back to, what did we do wrong? And the very widespread answer to that question is going to be nothing, but you've just lost your job anyway. And I think that one of the real human costs and one of the real things we're going to see at close range is going to be this issue of people who effectively have no role in the thing that's just happened to them. That was the thing I was interested in, Mr Phillips, and I fear there's going to be a lot more of it around. Dominic, is there a film or a book or a play that you think has really managed to capture the financial crisis? Just the, the one that affected me most really was was, was Enron because I think that the, 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 this, is the docu- this is the, the documentary <clears throat> because in a, in a way it, it 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 was the most dramatic example of 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 the madness of it as well. That's the thing. Some some people had kind of lost their mind. 
I was quite interested by one comment that Baz Luhrmann made, the director of Romeo and Juliet and um, Don't See It, Australia. Uh, he's, uh, he's optioned The Great Gatsby because he says it's the great credit yeah. crunch novel, in his opinion, because, you know, there's that portent of doom in it and um, he could well learn some lessons from it. You disappointed um, me because I thought you'd go for James Buchan or... Yeah, sorry, yeah, two ones. Uh, James Buchan, a former Financial Times journalist, who I think is just a fantastic writer, and his work reminds me of a lot of John Lanchester's. He's just an amazing researcher. Uh, he wrote a book called Frozen Desire, just about the nature of money, and it's a fantastic disquisition on all things to do with money, and also a good history lesson as well. And secondly, again, this idea that all it takes, all we've got to do is be intelligent and latch onto a subject and see what comes. Uh, Margaret Atwood's Payback amusing on debt and the credit crunch is a very interesting book by someone who obviously is not an expert in finance but very quickly turned it around in um, six months and produced a very interesting piece of work I think. John? Well I strongly endorse all the choices made so far um, by Dominic and Dan. It's very hard to beat the way we live now, Anthony Trollope's novel about a bubble and a fraud and a crash. From Uh, over 100 years ago. Yeah but you know the, the psychological components are very similar, and that the thing about um, you know, I'm slightly obsessed with this thing of funny smells. You know that you can, in your heart, you slightly know something's wrong, even though you don't quite want to admit it. And I think, you know, Trollope's caught that better than anyone since. Sam, last word to you. Well, we talked about the sort of the, the small human stories in terms of sort of the bigger picture. Can I kind of go with John and go way back to say Steinbeck's The Great Grapes of Wrath or? A Frank Norris novel called The Octopus, which is about the, the, the railroads, in fact, but it was basically about finance and business and how it then affects down the line and destroys people's lives. Um, I think that, that those are good. And more, more recently, I would, still, I would still go along with Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. I think he had, it had an ambition to it. It was bold and it was tackling the world of New York in the, the mid-1980s. OK, well, that's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests. John Lanchester, Dominic Savage, Zan Brooks and Dan Milmo. The producer of this podcast was Ian Chambers. My name's Aditya Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.